Well, praise God that we get to hear these things, sing these things, and later even with the Lord's Supper, see these things this morning together. Uh, Our private worship unto the Lord is a blessing to us, our private devotions. I hope you have those. I hope you have time where you set aside to meditate on the Lord's Word and talk with Him. Our family worship is very special. I hope we have those where we are with our families worshiping the Lord But corporate worship, where we gather together as the assembled church, a gathered body of believers worshiping the Lord. What a special time this is. On the Lord's Day, the day that Christ was raised from the dead. It's a blessing to be here together and to see each other's faces and to hear each other sing praises to our King. This portion of our service is just as much a part of the worship service as everything else. You know, we don't want to think in terms of worship being the singing and then other parts being just other things. This is worship through instruction. And so uh, I pray this morning that our hearts and minds will be attentive and focused on growing in our relationship with the Lord by means of his word. And for our instruction this morning, we're going to go to Romans 16, verses 17 to 23. So if you'll go ahead and go there in your Bibles. Romans 16, 17 to 23. Over the last few weeks, as we are nearing the end of Romans, we've been given extended access to the thinking of the Apostle Paul. We have been able to see into his soul in a very unique way as we've come to the end of this longest of Paul's letters as well as this longest of his final reflections and greetings. Paul is the most well-known and influential Christian in the history of Christianity. Uh, You could say that Augustine is probably the most influential theologian in the history of the church since Paul, but what you find when you read Augustine is how influenced he was by the Apostle Paul. We could look at someone like Martin Luther and see the beginning of the Protestant Reformation all going back there to Luther and Calvin and others. And then we realize how much they were influenced by the letters of the Apostle Paul. The most influential Christian in the history of Christianity, 2,000 years. He is the chief persecutor of Christians converted to become the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who does the most in early Christianity to spread the name of Christ, to spread the aroma of Christ, to to spread the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the writer of most of the New Testament, 13 letters, and then whatever you do with The book of Hebrews, Uh, the early Christians, the earliest Christians thought Paul wrote Hebrews. Some have said that uh, Paul, uh, that Luke wrote Hebrews at the dictation of Paul or that Luke wrote it conveying Paul's message. But regardless of who wrote Hebrews, we have 13 letters in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. To say, and you hear people sometimes say this, I, I really don't like Paul, is to say, well, you really don't like the New Testament, right? I mean, how, how do you say you really don't like reading Paul, or you really don't like Paul, and then, you know, call yourself a Christian, or call yourself someone who believes in the New Testament, or follows the teaching of Jesus? As Paul often says, I am conveying to you the message of the Lord. To disobey me, to disobey the apostle, is to disobey the Lord Christ, because he is a commissioned apostle of Jesus, a witness to the resurrected Christ, a bold teacher and defender of the gospel, a loving missionary throughout the Mediterranean world. And if he had lived longer throughout who knows where, Paul would have just kept going and going and going. Paul may have been the first one to get on a ship and come to uh, the new world. (laughs) Paul may have been the first one to get on a ship you know, somewhere off the coast of, at the coast of Britain and try to make his way to other lands. He was so zealous for bringing the gospel, a loving missionary throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the known world, and finally a martyr 
for the glory of Christ. He sealed his discipleship with his own blood. As early tradition says, he was beheaded uh, outside of Rome. Beheaded and not crucified, upside down perhaps like Peter, because Paul was a Roman citizen. And according to Roman law, a Roman citizen could not be crucified. This is the writer of the letter to the Romans that we've been looking at for so long. This last portion of Romans, beginning in chapter 15, verse 14, gives us a unique window into the mind of the Apostle Paul. We, we gain much insight into his heart. So far, we've looked at how he conceived of his ministry. What did Paul think about his own ministry? What was his role? What was he about? What was he doing? He discusses that, his travel plans, his prayer requests, and his greetings of many known believers in Rome. Paul has not yet visited the Roman believers, although he has longed to for some time. But he already knows many of them. As we see at the beginning of chapter 16, he's mentioning all of these names. He knows a lot of the people there. Who knows? We, we just don't know what percentage of those 24 plus people mentioned, what percentage of those people are uh, were made up the Roman church, but Paul at least knows a sizable number, over two dozen people there in the Roman church or the Roman churches, as we saw the house churches. And in verses 1 to 16, he sends his greetings to these beloved saints, some of whom had ministered with him in various places. I mean, we, we, we sometimes have the idea that, that people in the ancient world we're just sort of stuck where they were. But, I mean, you're getting the sense as we read this, these people are all over the place. Uh, they're, they're moving about, doing mission work. And, and so many of the people whom Paul mentions in chapter 16 have been his co-workers elsewhere. They were converted elsewhere or they have helped him minister in other places. And by getting a, wind, a window into the heart of Paul, we get a window into the heart of Christianity. Uh, we're not just those who are following some historic leader like a, a Confucius or a Buddha or someone like that. We're, we're not interested in just setting out on uh, a being like Paul and, and, and just trying to, to, to make everything about Paul. Paul wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word through God's chosen, by grace, apostle. Paul was nothing more than an instrument, a vessel for the glory of God's gospel. But as we get insight into the heart of Paul, we get insight into the heart of Christianity itself. What should drive us? What are our priorities? And as we read Paul and, and Paul's own reflections about himself in the world and what he's about and what he's doing, we get a lot of insight into what our priorities ought to be. Two things have really stood out. First, the mission. The mission. Paul was a missionary. It is interesting how many have read Paul over the centuries and, and, and just seen him merely as a theologian. Paul's just sort of sitting uh, in a... In a at a desk, and he's theologizing. Yes, Paul is a theologian and the greatest of them. And yet all of his theology, all of his thinking, all of his knowledge and wisdom were bent towards making Christ known in the world. That was the passion of Paul's life. The mission that Christ be named and obeyed among the peoples. And that must be our mission. If we are to be a church in line with the apostles, if we are to be an apostolic church, one coming down from the apostles, receiving from them what they have brought forward to us through Christ, we must be those who are serving on mission, as we see in our vision statement. And we have much growing to do here. We have much growing to do as we think about what it means to be a missionary church. Another emphasis we see from Paul in these latter remarks is this, the importance of one another, the importance of unity and love. And you see there this emphasis on the outside world 
And this emphasis on the inside world, this inward and outward focus, the internal orientation and external orientation of the apostle. He cares deeply about making Christ known in the world, and he cares deeply about how those who are in Christ treat one another. Those who are in the Lord, being united, sending up their praises to God in harmony as one collective voice. Today we come to the second to last section of the epistle, which means, Lord willing, we will finish Romans next week. We are at the second to last section, and the focus in this passage is on Paul's care, his loving concern for the health and stability of the believers in Rome. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Apostles' Care, and here Paul abruptly follows his greetings. He's giving all of these greetings, and you're thinking, man, he's about to end this letter. He's greeting and greeting and greeting, and he's going to give a benediction, and he's going to move on and be done, and and that's the end of the letter. But in the middle of these greetings, he, he abruptly interrupts himself. We'll see some greeting material here at the end of this passage today. But he abruptly interrupts himself, and he follows this with a sober warning. What we're going to look at today begins with a sober warning from the apostle. And I think this is important to us in reminding us of this great truth. Those whom we love, we warn. Let me say that again. Those whom we love, we warn. Paul has made abundantly clear how much he cares for these people, how much he's prayed for them and longed to see them. He's mentioned many of them by name. I mean, he's gone to the trouble in all of those verses of mentioning all of these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not leaving people out. He's thinking of them. He has them written on his heart. These are the sorts of people he mentions in his prayers. His love for them is abundantly clear. But then that moves to this warning. And it tells us that loving and warning go together. So as we think about being here as brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we be the church if out of some sort of sentimentalism we fail to confront one another in our sin? If you see someone leaning off of the edge of a cliff You're going to run to their rescue. You're going to pull them back. If someone's walking out in front of a bus and the bus is about to hit them, you're going to say something to them. You're going to call out to them. There's danger. And yet we often, as believers, will see our brothers and sisters endangered, even potentially, as we see here with Paul, and we say nothing. Because our idea of love is more influenced often by the world than it is by Scripture. This sentimental be-nicism rather than the kind of love that we find in the heart of our Savior and in the heart of his apostles. As the apostles' care for the Roman Christians unfolds in this passage, uh, we see it in three parts. And so these are going to be our points for this morning, if you would like to write them down. The apostles' care unfolds in these three parts. So first, his warning to them, as I just said, verses 17 to 18. His heart for them in verses 19 to 20. And then finally, his friends who greet them, verses 21 to 23. So look out for these as we go through the text. As we read through the text, look out for these. And uh, Let me go ahead and get you to stand for the reading of God's word. And as we've done all along, yes, we're going to begin at the beginning of chapter 16, and I hope you'll feel the weight as we read all of those names of Paul's love, and then you'll see how his love transitions right into his warning. This is God's word. It is holy. It is profitable for his people. It is perfect, and it has the power in the hand of the Holy Spirit to save. Chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kenkrei, 
that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trufina and Trufosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asuncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And now for our passage for today, verses 17 to 23. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites or belly. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Sounds like a father there. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord. Let's ask for his blessing. Let's ask that he would work in our hearts, that we would be cut to the heart, and we would be conformed to the image of of our Savior. Let's pray that if there's any among us this morning who is unconverted, who does not know the Lord, who is unsaved, not born again, that Christ would become king in that heart. Let's pray for his mercy to be shown to those individuals today. Father, we thank you that we have your word before us. How blessed we are to be in this moment, Lord, to be sitting here, Bibles open, hearing the oracles of the living God who made the universe, who made the galaxies, who made the stars. Father, we bow before you, our holy God. You are worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all of our attention. May our minds, may our hearts not miss this opportunity, Lord. May we not take this lightly that here we are before your word, able to grow by it, to be built up, to be equipped for every good work, to be made wise, to be fed, to be sanctified by your truth. Father, we are greatly in need of your help as we come to it this morning. We, we trust that you will do great things among us as we look at your word, as we seek to understand its meaning. We pray now, Father, that your spirit would guide us, each of us, and us collectively as a local church. We need your mercy, Father, as we, as we sang earlier and as Ken prayed, we are desperately in need of it, Father, right now. And so we pray that you would give it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is Paul's warning to them. And for that, we're going to look at verses 17 to 18. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Here, Paul issues a warning, a bright blinking caution sign. We've seen these on the highway. We've seen these on little roads that are about to end. It is an appeal, a strong urging from the apostle. Paul is saying, I appeal to you as the apostle. And he is saying, as he said earlier, I appeal to you earnestly because of how significant what I'm about to say is. And this warning from the apostle comes with two verbs. Watch out for and avoid. They are to look out for and stay away from something. But in this case, it's not something that they are to watch out for and avoid. It is someone or rather certain kinds of people who are dangerous opponents or adversaries. And just think of that for a moment. It is not just ideas that we are to look out for. It is not unloving to say what I'm about to say. It is not just ideas and trends and patterns and cultural elements and so forth that we are to look out for. We are to look out for flesh and bone people, fellow human beings who are adversaries, who are opponents, who must be, as Paul says here, avoided. As we find throughout the New Testament, the warning here concerns false brothers and false teachers. This is, this is ubiquitous. It's all over the place in the New Testament. Frequently, we find references to false teachers, false brothers. As Ken prayed earlier, those who are like ravenous wolves. They're called in Philippians 3, dogs. These are people who seek to tear apart what Christ has made, what Christ is building on the foundation of the apostles. We see it throughout the New Testament. And this tells us something very important that we must emphasize, especially coming out of all that we've seen in the last few chapters. The emphasis on love in chapter 12 and the emphasis on, on unity and Love for one another amidst differences in chapters 14 and 15. And all of the emphasis on unity in the midst of differences that we see, even in the list of names, there is something that we must say, and it is this. Unity should never sacrifice discernment and fidelity. The New Testament just doesn't do that. But what we have in our culture is we have, we, have uni, we have kind of unity people and then we have fidelity people. And what the New Testament does is it just brings those two things together. You don't have to sacrifice fidelity to Christ and his word, discernment about what is good and right and true. You don't have to sacrifice that or put that away in order to preserve or seek unity. As I've said many times, there is no unity apart from the scriptures. There is no unity apart from Christ and him crucified. There is no unity apart from the people of God filled with his spirit showing his fruit. Our unity is in that. Not in organizations or labels or denominations or anything of the sort. And so yes, we should pursue unity. And yes, we should pursue fidelity to God's truth and discernment about what seeks to undermine God's truth. Paul describes these people who must be carefully spotted and avoided. He describes them in three ways. This is what we're gonna look at here in a moment. They are divisive, self-seeking and deceptive. So let's go through the text and look at each of those. They are divisive, self-seeking, and deceptive. So first, they are divisive. As Paul says here, they cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. You should take all of that together. 
Notice that their divisiveness is rooted in false teaching. Do you see how the two go together here? It's divisiveness related to false teaching. Their causing of divisions is connected to their creating obstacles contrary to sound doctrine. Or another way we could say that is to apostolic teaching. So let me just say this to us. If you don't know sound doctrine, you know there are are churches out there that make little of theology. It's just all about practical help for life. How do I be a good mom? How do I be a good dad? How do I be a good coworker? How do I get rid of uh, uh, this uh, addiction to porn? Or how do, I, how do I stop doing this particular habit? Or how can I be more disciplined? Or how can I be more responsible? The, the role of the church is not that. The role of the church is to so convey God's glorious truth to his people and to massage it so much into their hearts that they begin to, out of being informed by God's truth, they begin to look more and more like Christ. We are conformed to the image of Christ as we behold him in his glory. That's Christology. That's doctrine. We are sanctified by the truth. As Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17. So how in the world are we to do what Paul is saying if we do not know sound doctrine? If we are not theologically informed? How will we recognize, if we are not committed to sound doctrine, how will we recognize that what is being taught is indeed contrary that it is indeed contrary to the truth. That's the reason many people are just swept away by all kinds of false teaching is because there's so little commitment to knowing, to imbibing, to meditating on what is revealed in Scripture. You're a prime target. You spend little time in God's Word. You know little of the content, the raw content of the Bible. Be not surprised. When next thing you know, you're off in left field somewhere with your doctrine, with your understanding of what is true. How will you be able to spot what Paul is saying to spot and avoid what Paul is saying to avoid without a commitment in your own life and to us as a church? A commitment to sound doctrine. Galatians chapter 5, verse 20 as we think about these divisions, lists such rivalries, dissensions, and divisions as the works of the flesh. Rivalries, dissensions, and divisions are works of the flesh. That means that they come from our inadamness, not our in Christness. And what Paul is saying here is that these works of the flesh ride into the church on the back of false teaching. A church that seeks to know and live God's truth, that is committed to know and live God's truth, is a church that will be fortified more and more against dissensions, divisions, and rivalries. The two are related. Second, so we see that they are divisive. Second, we see that these people are self-seeking. They are self-seeking. They must be avoided because, as verse 18 begins with that word for, because they do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Man, may that not be said of any of us on the day of judgment. You did not serve the Lord Christ. You served your own appetites. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. May none of us hear words like that. We are all plagued with an innate selfishness that we carry around in these mortal bodies. We are always being tempted to turn inward, which is why in his letter to them, Paul tells the Philippians in chapter two, verses two to three, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interest of others. The Philippians aren't like the Corinthians or the Galatians with all these massive troubles. I mean, Paul's letter to the Philippians is very encouraging. Sure, there are disputes among them that we get from other instances in the, in the letter. We see references to that. But on the whole, Paul is encouraged, encouraged about the Philippians. But he writes this nonetheless. Because as we carry around our mortal bodies, we are always tempted to turn inward. But here, Paul identifies false brothers and teachers who are defined by this selfishness. They are not trying to put that to death by the Spirit, as Romans 8 verse 13 says. Instead, they live for their own appetites. As I said before, they literally live for their bellies. The belly being the image as we take in food and drink. The belly being the image of just living for one's own pleasure. Living for one's own self. That's what Paul is getting at. Satisfying self is the name of the game for these people. Not servants of Christ, not submitted to him, not concerned with his glory, not desiring to do good to his people. Servants of self rather than servants of Christ. They are idolaters who bow down to self rather than Jesus. This is the, thing, the kind of thing we read in, at the beginning of Romans, chapter one, verse 25. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Who is the creature? Self. One's own self. And all the little things that they desire to have, whether it's the praise of men or money or food and drink or whatever, all those things that they desire worshiped above God put in place of God. These false brothers, these false teachers are idolaters. Finally, such people are deceptive. So they're divisive, they're self-seeking, and thirdly, they are deceptive. By the way, let me just, just before we go on, let me just say this. These people still exist. It's up to us to identify. And not in a witch hunt kind of way, but it is up to us to be discerning enough to be able to say, not going to listen to that, not going to read that, not going to make that my focus, not going to follow that guy, and so forth. These individuals have always existed in the history of the church. Because Satan has always been there since the beginning of the church. So finally, we see that such people are deceptive. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They are liars like their father, the devil, who is the father of lies. Words, as we know, are a powerful thing. Aren't they? Words. Words have moved history. You could literally do a, a history of the world through the use of oratory. A history of the world through how words and speeches and all these other things, writings, have moved along the history of peoples in the world. Just telling us how much more powerful the word is than the sword. The ancient Greeks and Romans who put much emphasis on oratory, understood this, the power of language and words. And here, Paul reminds his readers that some people who claim to be Christians lead people astray with their honey-dripping words, their lies, their deceptions. Man, they sound really good. They write so well, and they're so funny. And they understand me. They get my situation. Whatever. Fill in the blank. But the words are dripping with sweetness. Smooth talk and flattery. They are like the adulterous woman in Proverbs who lips drip with honey, but really she's like a spear going into the soul, going into the heart, like an arrow piercing the insides 
of the young man who falls to her. That's what these false teachers are. They are spiritual adulterers. And here, Paul reminds his readers that some people who claim to be Christians do this. And they do it because of their smooth talk and flattery. They are able to get a foothold in people's hearts. They do this with these words, and by doing that, they are able to get from the ears to the heart. We are so naive, aren't we? into thinking that we can take things into the ears and take things into the eyes and it not pierce the heart. It always pierces the heart. And so with these ear-tickling words, hearts are overturned. The naive are deceived. The naive fall. The naive are lied to and led astray. And this is why looking out for and avoiding are so important. Notice this. We're not told to explore or seek to understand the teaching of false teachers. Now let me just make a point about that. We understand that apologetics is an important thing. We also understand that being able to understand your opponent and anticipate objections is an important thing in debating and talking with people and, and helping to get these obstacles out of other people. Maybe, maybe someone who's been raised as a Mormon and you, you meet them and you're trying to witness to them, you're trying to share your faith with them and you recognize that a little bit of knowledge about Mormonism will help you to unseat the hold that that false teaching has on their minds. But we need to notice all of that being true Nevertheless, we see here that we are not told to explore or seek to understand their teaching. We are simply told to avoid them. This is not an invitation to pull up a seat and have a cup of joe. This is an instruction. It is an apostolic command to stay away. So we recognize the need for conversations the need for witnessing and the need for apologetics. And at the same time, in humility, because of the great danger that exists around the corner, we recognize the apostles' words to stay away. And here's the thing. Where there are false teachers, it's not intellectual really. It's about the belly. Remember what Paul said? It's not really that they've got the arguments, they've got these things figured out, and, 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 and you, you really just need to convince them. You need to rationalize with them. And if only you'll make the best argument, if only you will put your bullets in the right order, then you will be able to clearly explain to them, and they'll see the light and come to Christ. No, because the core issue is not the organization of their thinking rationally. The problem is the sin of idolatry in their hearts. That's what we find here. Their God, as Paul says elsewhere, is their belly. Commentators debate what sort of false teaching is in view here, and Paul just doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us enough details to, to, to know exactly what he's talking about, but what we see is that it undermines truth, it divides the church, and it comes from a heart bent on self. And the, the truth is, this could really be said of any false teaching. This could really be said of any false teacher. Dividing the church, undermining the truth, and coming from a heart bent on self. So we recognize that Satan, working in such individuals, brings all kinds of flavors you know, you go to a place with lots of different ice cream flavors and, and you get maybe some of these places, it's insane the different flavors that you can get. You're thinking, I just want vanilla or I just want chocolate. And they've got all these flavors. Satan is like that in human history. There are many flavors of false, many flavors of lie. And they do these things. They seek the destruction of the unity and the truth of the church, or you could say the unity and the fidelity of the church. The second aspect of Paul's care here we see as we move to our second point is his heart for them. Look at verses 19 to 20. 
his heart for them. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that Paul has warned the Romans about the dangers of false teaching, he lays open his heart for them. Paul lays open his heart for them in particular. And we see three things here. First, his joy over them. Second, his desire for them. And finally, his reassurance to them. So we're gonna look at each of those. First, his joy over them. He says, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. We see here his joy over them. When Paul thinks of the Romans, his heart is filled with joy. When when he thinks of the Galatians, he's ready to pull his hair out. He's wondering, what's happened to these people? I mean, have have they gone away from the faith? And the Corinthians, what's going on there? We see the pastoral heart, but we also see some hair pulling. It's not the case here. For the Romans, his heart is filled with joy. Their obedience of faith is celebrated among the churches. So chapter one, verse eight, we get this at the beginning of the letter and we get it at the end of the letter. It's like a sandwich of of apostolic comfort or, or reassurance. Chapter one, verse eight. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's what he thinks about the Roman believers. And chapter 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That is a glowing commendation to say about a body of believers. So what is the result for the apostle? He is filled with joy when he thinks about these saints, when he thinks about these brothers and sisters. That's what he thinks of them. And yet, he still warns them. Remember, it is when you think that you stand that you are most apt to fall, right? Remaining humble, remaining cognizant of need for mercy, remaining cognizant of our own sins and our need to confess our sins, and our own frailty, constant need of grace. That is how we live the Christian life. That is how we move from the beginning to death. Not being bowed up, not gorilla-like chest beating, not thinking that we are standing so tall. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so yes, The apostle can say in one breath, I'm warning you, I'm warning you of these things. And in the same breath, he can say, when I think of you guys, I'm so full of joy because you're so faithful to the truth. Those two things go together. And the Roman believers are meant to see that there is danger. And there's danger for us. Listen to this, Christian, there's never a point where there is no danger. There's never a point where you've gotten out of the dangerous woods where it's just all smooth sailing. You're just coasting along the edge of uh, the coast. No, there's always woods and there's always the middle of the sea. There are always things that we face and we constantly need to be reminded of these things. Second, his desire for them. We see his joy for them his joy over them, and we see his desire for them. Even though he has confidence in them, he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul wants them to be innocent as to what is evil, not naive, so that they fall into evil. Remember, it is, it is the naive who are deceived. And what do we think about? We think of people who are naive. They seem innocent, right? They seem They seem so nice. They seem so trusting. They seem so innocent. There's a point at which innocence becomes folly. 
there's a point at which it becomes being naive. And that's why Paul uses here two words that can be translated innocent when he is talking about those being deceived and here when he talks about clinging to being innocent as to what is good. We are to be innocent or innocent as to what is evil. We are to be innocent, not naive. Paul has taken much time to set forth his gospel in this letter. And he wants them to be guided by the wisdom of this sound doctrine, to be wise as to what is good. Romans chapter 12, 9 puts it this way, to abhor what is evil, to hold fast to what is good. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 16, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We want to be innocent as to what is evil, but that doesn't mean being naive to where we are not wise as serpents. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Discerning and all about the good. We must trade in simple-mindedness for sound teaching. May there not be among us here any simple-minded Christian. I didn't say simple, simple Christian. We think about uh, people just going about the Christian life, living the Christian life, and, and having a, a very, ba- not, not being academic in particular. We're not talking about that. What I'm talking about is a kind of simple-mindedness that does away with wisdom, that does away with discernment, so that we are not able to be wise, as the apostle calls us to here. We must trade in simple-mindedness, a lack of wisdom and discernment, for sound teaching that pursues the good. And then thirdly, we see Paul's reassurance to them. The God of peace, he says, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As Christians avoid false teachers and cling to the good while abhorring the evil, we are carried along by confidence and grace. So here we are. We're the church of Christ, and there's the threat There's the danger of false teachers and false teaching. There is the danger of evil. What are we to do? How are we to be reassured in this situation, in this context? And that's exactly what Paul does here in this verse. As Christians avoid these false teachers, we are carried along by this confidence and grace. Confidence in the final victory of Christ and his people over Satan and his people. And so we see here a reference to Genesis 3.15. Isn't that interesting? Do you see Paul referring back to Genesis 3.15 where God made the promise indirectly to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Interestingly here, Paul says that it is the believers who crush the head. It is the believers who do the crushing. And that reminds us that Christ has joined us to himself. We will reign with Christ. We will judge angels. And in Christ Jesus, Satan will be forever under our feet when he is thrown in the lake of fire. We with Christ will soon crush his head with all of his error and divisiveness and deception. And with this hope, of Christ's coming again with this hope of Satan being ultimately crushed, we move forward today and every day also with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul ends here. This grace in which we stand, Romans 5, 2, this grace that is sufficient for each of us, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and this grace that gives help in time of need, Hebrews 4, 16. Christian, You are never without God's grace. You're never without God's help. You're never without a a, a listening ear from Abba, Father. He's always with us. He always hears us. He is always ready to give us help in time of need. After giving this warning, followed by encouragement, Paul returns to more greetings. And that's where we finish up this morning his friends who greet them. And for that, we're gonna look at verses 21 to 23. 
Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. We get another list of names. You may notice here that verse 24 is skipped in the ESV. Someone came up to me uh, after the service last week and said, uh, I was reading ahead and I noticed that this verse is missing. It goes 23 and then it immediately goes to verse 25. Well, thankfully, the editors of the Bible, uh, the different, different translations, but if, if you're looking at it ESV, the editors of the ESV give a little note that says this at the bottom of the page. Some manuscripts insert verse 24, and it would have been given verse 24 because the King James Version would have this. And then it gives the text, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is what scholars call a textual variant. And this one just happens to be a larger addition that involves an entire verse. And so there have been plenty of these throughout, little, little insertions in some manuscripts, this, you know, to our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, uh, Christ is added or Christ is omitted in some manuscripts and so forth. We get those sorts of things throughout. It becomes readily apparent to us here because it just happens to involve an entire chunk of text that was given a verse number. And so that's the reason we go from verse 23 to verse 24. It happens to be a larger edition that involves this entire verse rather than a mere phrase or word. Now, I'll say a little bit more about these textual matters next week, but for now, I'll say that the earliest manuscripts and what are regarded as the best manuscripts through the history of transmission, over 5,000 manuscripts copied throughout the history of the church, the earliest and what are regarded to be the best manuscripts do not have these words in them. The same is true, for example, of the, uh, those last set of verses at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Or you'll read uh, of the, the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Those are probably the most famous. These chunks that weren't in the earliest manuscripts, but throughout the history of transition, transmission, get added by scribes for whatever reason into the text itself. For various reasons, they were probably added by scribes, maybe even in the margins of manuscripts by readers, and then at some point, integrated into the text itself. Maybe for liturgical purposes and worship services, public readings. Maybe because the, the scribe understood it to be part of the text itself. There are a whole host of reasons that these things happen. And the field for this is called textual criticism. But I at least wanted to talk about that today because there's an entire verse not there. And you might be wondering, hold on a second. The ESV guys, they, they, they forgot one. They forgot this verse. So Paul here returns to greetings, but this time greetings from others. These are his friends, his co-workers in the gospel. Timothy is the first name, Paul's closest fellow worker. And Timothy's story really goes back to Acts 16, where he is with Paul uh, off and on after that. He, he, uh, we see Timothy joined with Paul there in Acts 16. And then we find Timothy in the picture. Uh, Timothy's name is mentioned in so many of the letters that Paul writes. He is Paul's closest associate throughout his ministry from that point forward. Philippians 2 verse 22 gives a, a little bit of info about how Paul sees Timothy. But you know Timothy's proven worth, he says. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And so Timothy Paul's fellow worker greets the Roman Christians just as Paul does. Then we see Lucius, Jason, and Susipater. These are fellow Jews. And it's interesting here. Remember in Jerusalem, there are Jews who are confused about Paul. And throughout Paul's letters, we see Jewish false teachers, Judaizers, and others. We see this in 2 Corinthians. We see this in Galatians, probably in Philippians 3. And that's likely what is even in the background here when Paul gives his warning. And so Paul, he's always dealing with Jewish false teachers. And so it's probably the case that he mentions these Jews here just once again to remind the Romans, hey, my gospel is embraced by right-believing Jews. 
Tertius, or Tertius, is here Paul's secretary or amanuensis. Now, when you read this, you might be like, what? Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. You're like, hold on a second. Who wrote this letter? I mean, we've been reading from the apostle. I don't even know this guy, Tertius. Who is he? I know who Paul is, but who is Tertius? I thought Paul wrote it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's how Paul begins the letter. And now we get Tertius, Tertius. Well, this is common that there would be a secretary or an amanuensis, as they're called, who, who dictate, or well, they do the writing of what is dictated by the apostle. The apostle, of course, is going to dictate what he's writing. He's going to check what's being written. He's going to check and make sure that it's what he wants to say. He's obviously going to read over it and think through it and make corrections and do a second or third draft or whatever before it is finally sent. Because it is from who? Paulos, Paul, as the first verse of the letter makes clear. And then we have this guy, Gaius, who is host to Maybe traveling Christians, or maybe he's the host to the whole church of Corinth. I mean, this guy, this guy may have a palatial-sized home, big enough to where it's actually in his home that all the believers of the church in Corinth meet. So unlike Rome, where you've got all these little scatterings of churches, it may be in Corinth that they all do come together in Gaius' home. Or it may be that Paul here is just referring to his hospitality to many traveling Christians. Erastus, interestingly, is called the city treasurer. And he is likely the one named in an inscription found in Corinth. There is an inscription in Corinth of an Erastus who is probably what the Romans called an edile. An aedile, it's, it's someone who is in charge of uh, certain kinds of public works, and specifically streets and buildings and finances. This would have been a very important person in Corinth during this time of his aedileship. And Paul mentions this individual. Now, note this. Last week, we talked about how many slaves there were among the Christians in Rome. And you might get the impression that the early Christians were just, just a bunch of slaves. And there were early pagan writers who made fun of Christianity saying, the Christians are just a bunch of women, children, and slaves. That's what some early pagan writers said about the Christians. But here we see that there are also the likes of Gaius and Erastus who are in Christ's church. These are important, influential, or wealthy individuals who are part of Christ's church. So we see that there is a socioeconomic diversity in the early church. And finally, we have Quartus, who is simply mentioned as a brother. As I finish up, I want you to see something about what Paul is doing here. You might just go over these names and think, okay, more names. But in contrast to the false brothers and teachers whom Paul has just mentioned, these guys are the real deal. Do you see how Paul's doing that? He's just warned them, stay away from the false brothers. Stay, well, so-called brothers. Stay away from the false teachers and listen to and move toward and have unity with guys like this. Brothers like this. Coworkers like this. These are the sorts of people who are genuine servants of Christ because they are those who hold true to the apostolic teaching. As I finish up this morning, I want you to think about this. Paul is the one we read about in history. Paul's the big name. He's the big name and that's where our minds go. But I want you to see something important here. Consider all the people who made Paul's ministry possible. You see all these people? Paul probably, well, Paul had trouble with his eyes, and so he writes uh, at the end of letter. Well, some, some, some have speculated about Paul's vision and so forth and the thorn in the flesh. But, but we know that, that Paul had some, some difficulties in his ministry. He needed people. He had many enemies. He needed people to house him. He needed people to carry his letter. 
He needed people to be a secretary and write down what he was dictating. He needed people whom he could send to check on the churches. He needed people to send, for example, to places like Crete to establish leaders. He needed all kinds of people, and many of these people we will never know about in this life. But Christ does. Paul will be no more exalted in heaven than they will. Paul will be no more exalted in glory than any of these precious saints mentioned in Romans 16. And that's the case for all of us. There really are no ordinary Christians. What an extraordinary identity we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your instruction this morning from your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul And how we get so much insight into his heart. Lord, what he was about, what drove him. We pray that the same things would drive us individually and as a local church. We thank you, Father, for this time to feast together before your face on the Lord's Supper. To be present here with you, communing with Christ and with one another. We pray that you would bless this visual representation of the gospel that as we partake this morning of the Lord's Supper, that our hearts would be lifted up with comfort and assurance, that our hearts would be drawn toward love for one another and a devotion to King Jesus. We pray for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.